Welcome back to Thus Spoke He-Man, the show where we read Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophical novel Thus Spoke Zarathustra and watch the cartoon show He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Joining me today is my co-host Robo Henrik, an AI recreation of my former co-host and former friend Henrik. Hello Robo Henrik. Hello. So, what's on your mind today? So, Vagina Tantata is real. It's actually a vagina growing teeth to scare away evil ghosts. What What are you? Why are you? Yes, which sounds very painful. You, uh, it's very fabulous. Like, it has that uh, librarian chic. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, right now, what you can hear in the background is Elon Musk masturbating. <laughs> Well, he is kind of a weird guy, but I don't know. Oh, he would find it orgasmic. Speaking of horror stories... No, 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 no. I think that's plenty for now. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. Okay, let's move on from that and um, never speak of that again. Because in this episode, we are going to get started reading the book and watching the cartoon. So that's exciting. Are you ready? Let's get into some Fraggle-struct. No, that's the old thing. Let's get into some The Spoke He-Man. Yeah, let's nuke it. Okay, okay, relax there. So, let's start with the book. And this time, we're just gonna bite off a good chunk. Because it begins with, like, a separate section called Zarathustra's Prologue. And then after that, the rest of the book is a series of shorter speeches from him. So this time we're covering the entire prologue. We may run a bit long, but I think we need it to get properly into the Nietzscheverse. The prologue is around 14 pages and is divided into 10 short chapters. So what, 10%? Not even. No, more like 5% of the book, I think. But Calm down. Don't be so eager to get this over with. Remember, it's the journey, not the destination. <laughs> I am I am not bringing this this trashy book on my vacation. Jesus Christ, dude, we've just started this thing. You can you can just say it if you don't want to be here. No, it's fine. It's fine. I'm ready. Okay. Great. So, uh, let's do this thing. Chapter 1 of the prologue. We meet this guy Zarathustra. He's a 40-year-old guy who's been sitting in a cave in the mountains for 10 years, apparently hanging out with an eagle and a snake. As we meet him, he's having a conversation with the sun, or rather, at the sun, since it time and again fails to answer him. Very weird relationship they have going there, yes? Yeah. He decides that he must go down from the mountain and share his vast wisdom in his own estimation, with other people. As he puts it, I am overburdened with my wisdom. Like the bee that has gathered too much honey, I need hands outstretched to receive it. And I just gotta say, I feel the same way much too often. No, no, same, 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 same. So Zarathustra feels that he's no longer human, and he wants to become human again. Thus began Zarathustra's going under. That's how the first chapter ends, and uh, let me just say, hopefully this podcast won't be my going under. Well, in chapter two, 
On his way down from the mountain, Zarathustra meets an old holy man who lives in the woods. The old man recognizes Zarathustra from when he went up the mountain ten years earlier. I guess you don't meet a whole lot of people when you live in a hut in the forest. So uh, they have a little chat, and they turn out to have some differences in opinion. This gives Zarathustra a chance to philosophize a little bit. The old man questions why in the holy hell Zarathustra wants to go and interact with other people. He puts it a bit more eloquently than that, throwing some shade at humanity while he's at it, saying, Zarathustra is transformed. Zarathustra has become a child. Zarathustra is an awakened one. What do you want now among sleepers? Zarathustra says that he loves human beings and wants to bring them a present. The old man has stopped loving humans and now only loves God. He advises Zarathustra to not give them anything, and if he does, only alms. You know, like uh, alms, the small charity you would give to a beggar. And he encourages him to let the humans beg for even that. Then Zarathustra gets a little witty and replies, I give no alms, for that I'm not poor enough. He's kind of trying to channel his inner Oscar Wilde here, I think who famously threw around humorous, twisty one-liners such as uh, I can resist everything except temptation. And uh, there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. So the old man laughs and warns Zarathustra that people don't like loners and are suspicious of them. Instead, he advises him to stay in the forest, why would you not be like me, a bear among the bears, a bird among the birds? And what does the holy man do in the forest? asks Zarathustra. The holy man answered, I make up songs and sing them, and as I make up songs I laugh and weep and growl. Thus do I praise God. That's That sounds kind of nice, actually. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, you get some free time. You actually get, get to like like delve into yourself after a long like hard life yeah but but our guy Zarathustra isn't into this idea so the two guys part ways and Zarathustra continues down the mountain and as chapter two closes out we get the most famous Nietzsche quote ever with a good sense of showmanship he knows how to hook the audience early so he mic drops the chapter like this when Zarathustra was alone again he spoke thus to his heart could this be possible? This old holy man in his forest has heard nothing of this yet that God is dead. Dun, dun, dun. Bam. How's that for a cliffhanger? Wow. From this moment on, the piano is obsolete. Ah, you're so weird, Robo Henrik. Okay, chapter three. And once you know that you got the audience's attention, the time has come to start the real show. Because now Friedrich Nietzsche introduces the Übermensch, or as this translation calls it, the Overhuman. Which of course could also be translated to the Superman. So I was thinking that maybe every time we mention the Overhuman, we should have like a little fanfare, you know, like the... Superman logo! Yeah, 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 exactly. The Overhuman. 
So, Zarathustra gets to a town and finds a crowd gathered to watch a tightrope walker perform. And of course, he immediately starts preaching to them about the overhuman. Don't you also find that public gatherings just really dick impromptu philosophy lectures? <laughs> oh yeah, I teach you the overhuman, he says. The human is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome it? So he basically tells the crowd about evolution in a way. He says that all beings develop into a higher form, like how apes have developed into humans. And humans are supposed to evolve into this higher form, the overhuman. And it will be to humans as apes are to us. And then he says, do not believe those who talk of over-earthly hopes. They are poison mixers, whether they know it or not. They are despisers of life, moribund and poisoned themselves, of whom the earth is weary. So let them pass on. I'm, I'm trying to give it like a fun spin when I do these quotes, just for the hell of it. So he continues to be very suspicious of those religious types. They only offer poison, if you ask, Zarathustra. He repeats that God is dead, and so now you can only be sacrilegious and blasphemous against the earth itself. Jeez, I wonder why this book was controversial in the 1880s. Whew. By the way, uh, around here, the soul is described as female. Oh, nice. How progressive for once. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that is an artifact of the German language having gendered nouns or it is a sign that Nietzsche is hashtag fucking woke. In any case, better print-ups and t-shirts saying the soul is female. Kathleen Kennedy style, baby. Oh, wait. The entire sentence is... Oh, this soul was herself... Still lean, ghastly, and starved, and cruelty was the lust of the soul. Uh, maybe that isn't so feminist after all. <sighs> also, just a side note, is your soul not poverty and filth and wretched contentment? Classic pickup line that you might want to try out the next time you're out in the club. Surprisingly effective because it, it works on several levels. And according to Zarathustra, the human is a polluted stream and it would take an entire sea to absorb it without becoming dirty itself. Luckily, such a sea exists and it is the overhuman. <sighs> Do you guys get like a salesman vibe from this Zarathustra guy? I mean, he's out there trying to sell his overhuman concept and he's doing the old tactic of inventing a problem so he can introduce the cure. See, I didn't know that I was a polluted stream and that my soul is poverty and filth and wretched contentment. But now that I do, of course I'm interested in this sea that can absorb my pollution without becoming unclean. The overhuman, you say? And how much does it cost? $9.99? Huh. Does it come in a six-pack? If anything, it's just too cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great deal. And then Zarathustra goes in for the heart cell. 
what is the greatest you could experience? It is the hour of the great despising, the hour in which even your happiness disgusts you, and likewise your reason and your virtue. All these things, happiness, reason, righteousness, all that is poverty and filth and wretched contentment, he claims. All stuff we have to overcome, which makes sense. My happiness is actually really filthy. Yes, yes. Let's just keep this grimy and dirty, man. He then says that we, uh, that we need to be inoculated with madness and that this madness is the overhuman. Sure. Okay, I, I, I don't want to be negative here and I don't want to be an anti-vaxxer type and tell you that you shouldn't get inoculated with madness. I'm just saying, maybe don't buy your madness vaccine from the first hobo to wander down from the mountain shouting about filth and wretched contentment. It's okay to get a second opinion first. That's all I'm saying. But back to the story. Zarathustra is shouting all these wondrous things about the overhuman to this crowd of people waiting to see a rope dancer. And then one of the guys waiting catches that Oscar Wilde buck and starts quipping too. We've heard enough about that rope dancer fellow. Now let's see him too. Suggesting that the rope dancer is this overhuman that Zarathustra has been talking about and that Zarathustra is just his hype man warming up the crowd. We then get to chapter 4, where Zarathustra compares humanity to the rope strung out between the two buildings that the walker is about to go across. In one end, the lower stages, the beast, and in the other end, the overhuman. And humanity is then the rope, the dangerous middle stage that we must cross over to get to be overhumans. He says, what is great in the human is that it is a bridge and not a goal. What can be loved in the human is that it is a going over and a going under. Aha! Uh -huh. This calls back to chapter 1, where Zarathustra himself began his going under. So, by going around and telling people all this stuff, is that his way of making the jump to overhuman? Or is he already the overhuman? <laughs> See, uh, if this podcast was made by someone who actually understood this text and uh, knew what he was talking about and not a dum-dum like me, you would actually learn what the case is here. But since I'm just making my way through this book with a little to uh, no uh, deeper knowledge or understanding, uh, I can just guess. The rest of the chapter is just like a list of people that Zarathustra loves. They are people who want their going under. A list of people who want to go under. Similar to cats, maybe, I guess. Well, anyway, here are a few. I love those who do not know how to live except by going under, for they are those who go over and across. I love him who makes of his virtue his addiction and his undoing. Thus he wills for his virtue's sake to live on and to live no more. 
I love him who is ashamed when the dice fall in his favor, and who then asks, Have I been playing falsely then? For he wills his own perishing. Mm, I don't know. It sounds kind of morbid, doesn't it? Yeah. All this willing your own perishing to go gladly over the bridge and become the overhuman. Are you guys catching like a creepy suicide cult vibe from this guy? All I'm saying is he'd better not bring out any Kool-Aid here. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. This is only chapter four. I should give this guy Zarathustra a chance to show that he's actually a really nice guy and not just a death-fixated hobo, snake-oil-selling, Oscar Wilde, cult-leader type of guy. But let's get into chapter 5. So Zarathustra has been saying all this stuff to the crowd, and they're just laughing at him. And in his typical laid-back style, he thinks, Must one first smash their ears before they learn to hear with their eyes? He decides to use his top-notch communication skills and try to talk in a way that his audience can appreciate. So who are these people? They have something of which they are proud. But what do they call that which makes them proud? Culture, they call it. It distinguishes them from the goat herds. And because these people have culture and aren't farmers, he decides to speak to their pride. I will speak to them of what is most despicable, and that is the last human. His point is that we humans still have the capacity and ability to become the overhuman. But if we wait too long, we will degrade and lose the ability to evolve. Or else, Zarathustra phrases it in one of the more famous Nietzscheisms. One must still have chaos within in order to give birth to a dancing star. I say to you, you still have chaos within you. But if we wait too long, the result is the last humans, whom Zarathustra paints a little word picture of. You know what, I might just read the entire little section out loud, because it is really damn delightful. It's like a little children's book or something. Go for it. What is love? What is creation? What is yearning? What is a star? Thus asks the last human and then blinks. For the earth has now become small, and upon it hops the last human, who makes everything small. Its race is inexterminable as the ground flea. The last human lives the longest. We have invented happiness, say the last humans, and they blink. They have left the regions where the living was hard, for one needs the warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs up against him, for one needs the warmth. To fall ill and harbor mistrust is in their eyes sinful. One must proceed with care. A fool who ever still stumbles over stones or humans. A little poison now and then, that makes for agreeable dreams. And a lot of poison at the end, for an agreeable dying. One continues to work, for work is entertainment. But one takes care, lest the entertainment becomes a strain. One no longer becomes poor or rich. 
both are too burdensome. Who wants to rule anymore? Who wants to obey? Both are too burdensome. No herdsman and no herd. Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone is the same. Whoever feels differently goes voluntarily into the madhouse. Formerly the entire world was mad, say their finest, and then they blink. One's clever and knows all that has happened, so there's no end to their mockery. One still quarrels, but one soon makes up, else it is bad for the stomach. One has one's little pleasure for the day and one's little pleasure for the night. But one honors good health. We have invented happiness, say the last humans, and they blink. So, I actually really like these last humans. They sound a bit like fraggles or hobbits or something. <laughs> yep, yep. That could easily have been a like fraggle quote. <laughs> or something like a communist dream society. I actually wouldn't really mind being one of these last humans because it sounds like a comfy and chill existence. And it seems the crowd agrees because they interrupt old Zarathustra and shout, turn us into these last humans, then you can have the overhuman. And Zarathustra doesn't like this at all. He really thought he was going to convince the people of the wonders of the overhuman by describing these last humans. But he completely miscalculated their desires. In actuality, they would much prefer dancing their cares away and worrying another day. Too bad, Zarathustra. Oh well, the best laid plans of mice and uh, death cult starting mountain hobos. Okay, as chapter 6 begins, we are thrown into an exciting action piece. Ta-da! The tightrope walker finally starts his act and is balancing on the rope. But then another guy appears and gets onto the rope and starts chasing him, finally jumping over him while yelling insults. The tightrope walker falls down and lands besides Zarathustra, severely injured but not completely dead. Zarathustra tries to soothe him as he dies by talking philosophy to him and uh, then promises to bury him in his dying moments. In chapter 7, Zarathustra sits there with the dead body until nightfall. He's a little bummed that the only friend he has made so far is a dead guy. He realizes that he still has some work to do before he can make people understand how great the overhuman is. So he goes off and he says, Dark is the night, dark are the paths of Zarathustra. Come, you cold and stiff companion, I shall carry you to where I can bury you with my own hands. So we get to chapter 8, where he leaves town. And as he does that, the weirdo asshole who jumped over the tightrope walker comes up and basically threatens Zarathustra. He says that everybody in the town hates him, and if he isn't gone tomorrow, he will kill him. Nice guy, this uh, tightrope jumper. But as it turns out, the old man in the forest was right. People don't like a loner. Also, everybody hates that dead guy and mocks him. What the hell did he do? Wasn't he just an entertainer doing his job? As soon as this other guy makes him slip up, He's apparently going to hell and is too dirty for the gravediggers to bury. What the hell is wrong with these people? 
Okay, Zarathustra walks all night, and when it becomes morning, he puts the dead guy in a hollow tree and takes a nap on the ground. Waiting until morning. Fucking weirdo. As chapter 9 opens, Zarathustra sleeps for a long-ass time, and when he finally wakes up, he has a revelation. A light has dawned for me. Companions I need, and living ones, not dead companions and corpses that I carry with me wherever I will. Yeah, that's probably a good idea there, buddy. He decides he needs to start recruiting disciples, or get some friends, or cult members, depending on how you look at it. I found it a bit unclear, but it seems that he no longer wants to talk to regular people and will now focus his efforts on companions, people who really gets him. So he's a bit like the the guy who's really into indie rock and will only talk to you if you know some obscure record that he's really into. So, you know, like a... Like a Douchebag. Yeah. Zarathustra decides that putting the dead guy in a hollowed-out tree is a good enough burial, so he leaves him there and goes on his merry way. So he promised to bury him and just leaves him in a dead tree. Wow, Zarathustra, way to treat your only friend, the dead guy. In the tenth and final chapter, suddenly Zarathustra's pets show up. Because he had pets. Back home, he had an eagle and a snake for company. And now he sees the eagle come flying with the snake wrapped around it. He thinks the eagle is the proudest animal and the snake the cleverest animal. He wishes he could be as clever as his snake. But realizing that that's impossible, he instead wishes that if he loses his cleverness, his pride will fly off with his folly. Thus began Zarathustra's going under. And here the prologue of the book ends. What a chapter. Yeah. And next up will be the speeches of Zarathustra. So, to sum it all up, Zarathustra has been sitting on a mountain for ages and then decides to go down to the other humans to make some friends and tell them about all the wild ideas he's gotten up there. But the other kids just laugh at him and the only friend he makes is a dead guy. So he goes off to keep looking. He has this neat idea that humans are supposed to evolve into a higher form called the overhuman by overcoming their humanity and leaving behind religious and otherworldly beliefs. At least I uh, I hope that's right. At the very least, that's how I understood this section. And with that handled, we get to He-Man. And that is equally hard to comprehend. Oh, yeah. You know what, since we grabbed such a big chunk of Zarathustra today, let's go a bit easy on He-Man. I'm just gonna give a quick introduction to the world and the characters and just a brief summary of the episode. And then next time we can start to really dig into the implications of this weird world. But just to set the stage, I will note that this show takes place in a world that is a strange mix between science fiction and fantasy. Kind of magical, but at the same time, it they kept it somewhat pseudo-scientific. Yeah, exactly, with the heavy emphasis on the pseudo. It's kind of like Star Wars, but just gone horribly wrong. I have not watched the Star Wars movie in a long time. 
Okay, well, they're a mixed bag anyway. The only really good one is, of course, Solo. Okay, let's get into episode one, The Diamond Ray of Disappearance. First, we have an intro sequence. It's not really a song, more like a very long monologue of exposition, but I'm pretty sure it's gonna start off every episode. You know you got a tricky concept for a show when you have to spend the first minute and change of every episode reminding the viewers what the hell the premise is. And I know, we, we did that on Fraggles Rocked, and indeed on this very podcast here, just proves my point about incomprehensible premises. Breaking the fourth wall here with up in the podcast universe. Yeah. So, there's this guy called Prince Adam, who lives in a place called Eternia, which he defends from a bad guy called Skeletor. I think it's a bit presumptuous to assume Skeletor is evil just because he's called Skeletor, wears a sinister purple cloak and has a literal skull for a face. But he also lives in a snake mountain full of lava. So, I mean, either he's evil or he's just got a wicked sense of style. Mm-hmm. I think it's a badass enemy. Yeah, yeah, he seems m- much more compelling than any of the good guys. Prince Adam is kind of a lazy playboy who has a magic sword. And apparently one day he decided to try and just stick it up in the air and yell something about power. And that turned out to be a good call, because that transformed him into the most powerful man in the universe. In this state, he calls himself He-Man. His pet tiger, or whatever that is, called Cringer, becomes Battle Cat at the same time. He keeps this secret, and he has only told it to three of his friends. They are called the Sorcerers, Man at Arms, and Orko. I swear to God, the fucking names on this show. Also, the show is called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And I don't know who the Masters are. They never address this. I guess maybe it's the cat? Anyway, quick recap of what happens in this episode. We open with Skeletor, and he's really quite a guy. He's gotten himself a box containing a diamond that sends out a ray that transports anyone who sees it to another dimension. It's called the Diamond Ray of Disappearance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Makes sense. It glistens like diamonds. Because it is diamonds. He gets his buddies together, or maybe they're mercenaries. I don't know, I always confuse the two. These guys are incredible, but uh, I'm going to have to wait to another time to really get into this wrecking crew of weirdos. But Skeletor wants to use the diamond to invade the castle of the good guys and take over control of Eternia. So they send off one of the henchmen to attack the good guys, who are just chilling out and goofing off. The king, who is Prince Adam's daddy, sends his troops out to defend the castle. He looks like the Burger King mascot, essentially. By the way, the troops are led by a female captain called Teela. And that's surprisingly progressive for this show. I did not expect that. No. Prince Adam goes to hide with his pet tiger, because he's supposed to seem like he's a coward. And the king is so disappointed in his cowardly son. But really, they are sneaking off to transform into He-Man and fight the war. Why does he have to look like a coward in his father's eyes? I just 
don't understand that. For drama? Like he's doing like a dramatic thing? I guess just to make more attention. The the transformation into He-Man is just most of his clothes disappearing in a flash of light. He's got good abs, though. He-Man wears a strange sports bra-looking thing on his chest, which is otherwise just bare and bulging with muscles. And he transforms the tiger pet, Cringer, into a battle cat without its consent. That's gotta be like assault of some kind. I think it seems weirdly non-consensual. Yeah, the cat audibly protests. But um, He-Man and the army fight off the attack, but it was actually actually just a diversion to get the army out of the palace so Skeletor could sneak in and easily get to the throne room. Uh, does that sound familiar? I think George Lucas stole the entire third act of Star Wars Episode One from this episode of He-Man because the exact same thing is happening there. That explains all the talk about intergalactic trade routes. So Skeletor shows up in the castle with his henchmen, mere seconds before man-at-arms is warned by a sorceress via telepathic eagle. And this is normal. I'm not having a stroke. What the fuck is going on? I don't know. This show is very strange. Skeletor makes everyone in the castle disappear using the diamond, but Orko, a little flying guy, escapes and warns He-Man. So He-Man goes to Castle Greyskull. And this confused me a lot because I thought the King's Castle was Castle Greyskull. But that's apparently a completely separate location. And this Greyskull is a creepy abandoned dilapidated old castle. And in fact all of Eternia seems like a sad barren wasteland. Your barren hellscape. I don't know what's going on there. He-Man believes that the only one who can help them is the sorceress. He contacts her through a magic mirror. She tells him that he's the only one who can save them by crushing the diamond ray, which is as hard as a, well, diamond, because it's a diamond. This mofo better be as strong as he looks, because let me tell you, diamond's pretty, pretty hard. Skeletor shows up and attacks Castle Greyskull. It seems that what he really wanted was this old ruin, and for some reason he can't just have it. But whatever, there's a big battle scene, and part of it is just half-naked muscular men wrestling. Skelter shoots the disappearing ray at He-Man, who deflects it back with his sword, so Skelter drops the diamond. He-Man goes to get it, while everybody, good and evil, is just standing around and looking. He tries to crush the diamond and almost disappeared, but ultimately he is stronger than diamond. Those that were disappeared just reappear. Skelter runs away and the king and queen thank He-Man for his help. Afterwards, they sit in the throne room and wait around for Prince Adam to arrive. Where did they think he was? This whole Adam-slash-He-Man divide is very strange. For some reason, Adam is a complete fuck-up, or at least he pretends to be. Why? We don't really get that explained. No. Hopefully they will get into this in a later episode, but I somehow doubt that it will ever get explained. And conveniently, the episode ends with He-Man blankly stating a generic moral lesson directly at the camera. It is stuff like, 
In today's story, Skeletor was looking for a shortcut, a quick way to riches and power. But that's quite forced, I think. If anybody takes a shortcut to power, it's Prince Adam. He literally just points a sword at the sky and shouts, and then he's got all the power. But I guess it's a warning for me. Maybe I've been treating this podcast as a quick way to riches and power. I must remember that I have to work hard for it, otherwise I won't succeed. I can't just... Phone it the fucking... Yeah, see, that's what I shouldn't do. As He-Man says, don't sell yourself short. The right way is the best way. That is a trashy fucking advice. Mm-hmm. Um, have we about um, have we about reached the analysis section? Yeah. Now let's uh, have a little look at some thematic similarities between Zarathustra and He-Man, and also just some curious observations. I'm not going to do a deep comparative analysis and find all the deep hidden connections this time, because we'll get to that all in in good time in the next episode. I'll just cover this briefly. So, did they pass the Bechdel test? There is a short fight between Tila, the female captain, and uh, Evil Lynn, an evil woman, duh. They have a two-line exchange, and I guess they managed to pass the Bechdel test there just by the skin of their teeth. So, bravo. And then Skeletor's pet panther fights He-Man's pet tiger. Another matchup. I hope they're not doing like a juxtaposition between the two duels there and saying that they're both cat fights. Because then, I, I mean, I, then I'm just revoking the Bechdel passing. And what about Zarathustra? Clearly no fucking backdoor test on the fucking... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't expect that one to pass anytime soon. So, uh, pets? Zarathustra has an eagle and a snake as pets. He-Man has a tiger. Skeletor has a panther. And there was a messenger eagle that was probably the sorceress's pet. So there was an eagle in both, but it probably wasn't the same one. Um... That's a sort of unifying theme, untraditional pets. I guess the panther is probably an emotional support panther for Skeletor. But that's something to watch out for moving forward. I wonder what will be next. Pet worms? Like a feral, gaunt, angular animal. Ooh, fingers crossed for that. Another thing they have in common is repeating names much too often. Nietzsche mentions Zarathustra's name a lot. Chapter 2 is 576 words long, around a page and a half. And the name Zarathustra is used 14 times. Is he afraid that we forget the name of the protagonist? And in the show, a Greek chorus of sorts just keeps singing He-Man in the background. It's like with the book, relax, we're not gonna forget the protagonist's name. It's already in the damn title. And, uh, another quick note. Skeletor seems to have the same transporter technology as Scotty from Star Trek. So there's something to watch out for there. But then again, it's probably uh, another universe that this crosses over with. Because Man-at-Arms, a soldier with a bad name and a great mustache, has a lightsaber for some godforsaken reason. 
And by the way, he's the father of the female captain, so I assume there's some nepotism going on there. But I don't know in which direction. I mean, she probably got her old man a job in her army out of pity, I would assume. And then finally, I will just point out that the He-Man show is surprisingly self-aware. Already in episode one, this show is poking fun at itself. For instance, Skeletor doesn't like to have exposition conversations. When his henchman begins saying, The diamond ray, but that makes those who see it. Old Skelly quickly shuts him down and says, I know what it does, Furface. And then later when Skelly says, At last I have the means to conquer Eternia and crush He-Man once and for all. He gets a sassy comeback from one of his assistants, saying, Oh, we've all heard that before, Skeletor, and He-Man has stopped us every time. This motherfucker has seen the show he's on. He knows what's up. He's got some of that Zarathustra Oscar Wilde quibby mojo going on there. And that's about it for this time. Next time we'll focus more on the world of He-Man. Yes, we can do that. So, just one last thing before we close out. And this is kind of exciting. Because, you know, last time I said that I was looking into monetizing this podcast in the hopes of making it a full-time job someday. And that means that I've opened the show up to a few ads here and there. And this time I'm proud to announce we have our very first sponsorship. Uh This episode is sponsored by Coffee. Are you feeling tired and unfocused? Do you need a little pick-me-up, a little boost of energy? Try coffee. Coffee is an almost magic substance that will wake you up and keep you going all night. Many people can't get through a day without it. Coffee is available as a fine powder that is easy to store and always ready for use whenever you need an extra boost of energy to really focus on your work. Phew. I can't believe I got paid $10 to read that. That wasn't so bad. I did manage to negotiate it over to coffee instead of cocaine, as it originally said, but that's a minor change. You know what a good cocaine show is. No, and don't tell me. I can't go down that path again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let's just get drunk for this with, like, a very dirty margarita. It is shitty, but it will get me drunk. Woo! Good call. Let's get wasted. I think the episode is over now. I just uh, I just threw a, a bit up in my mouth, so I think we're done. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Thus Spoke He-Man. Goodbye. Oh, you're messed up. Oh, you're messed up. Oh, you're messed up. Oh, you're messed up.